Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we will be having an extended conversation with author and activist Mark Levine about the tragic events in Israel-Palestine over the past week and his article, Zionism has become an existential threat to Jews, on this episode of Jacobin Radio. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. And today, we're going to be talking about the events this week in Gaza. And I'm really pleased to have Mark Levine with us. He teaches history at the University of California at Irvine and also at Lund University Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And he also recently taught at University of Bologna at Institute for Advanced Studies. He's a world musician. He tweets at culture jamming, and he's a columnist for Al Jazeera English. He's written many books. The most current is Islam and Popular Culture, published in 2016, and he's working right now on a collaboratively written history of the occupation with several dozen leading Palestinian, Israeli, and international scholars. And he's also a longtime contributing editor to Tikkun Magazine, and they just published the article that we're going to discuss and that's called Zionism Has Become an Existential Threat to Jews. So welcome to Jacobin Radio, Mark. I'm really pleased to have you. Oh, so great to be with you. Thank you. So with each new death, and this is a quote, in Gaza, the Israeli government is sealing the judgment of history as to the irredeemably racist and violent core of Jewish nationalism. As diaspora leaders, Jewish leaders beam with pride and sip champagne at the opening of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, while 60 miles away, young Jews massacred dozens of unarmed Palestinians with utter humanity and impunity. And so Mark Levine begins his searing account of Israel's atrocities as nothing less than the inevitable outcome of Zionism's fundamental nature from its very origins, which he interprets in turn as inherent in its founding and history as a settler colonial state. So we're going to ask Mark in today's interview to give us his account of settler colonialism to specify why he thinks the history of Zionism must be interpreted as a classic instantiation of settler colonialism, to tell us why he sees the recent events along the border of Gaza and in Jerusalem as representing a point of no return, and to explain why he views resistance to Zionism around the world, both of Jews and non-Jews, as in the process of transforming itself and taking off. So, Mark, let's just get right to it. Could you tell us how you understand the concept or the theory of settler colonialism and why you find it such a powerful tool in understanding our world today? in fact, necessary to grasp the politics and culture not only of Israel and Zionism, but as you also say in your article, such settler states as Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, and even the USA? Yeah, well, that's a great question, one that I've spent 30 years trying to understand, and some of my mentors, like Gershon Shafir and other Israeli scholars, have been looking at this idea of Israel and Zionism in particular as a settler colonial enterprise since at least the 1980s. This way of viewing it was really at the heart of what became known as the New Historians Movement or Revisionist Zionist Movement. And this might sound surprising or or even insulting 
insulting to someone who doesn't understand Zionist history. But, of course, for early Zionists, they saw themselves as settlers and as a colonial movement. Their associations were called colonial associations. Mm -hmm. This was not something to run away from. This was something to be proud of in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So it's absolutely undeniable that the Zionist movement saw itself in the mold of other settler colonial enterprises, whether it was in America, whether it was in Algeria, the French in Algeria, whether it was in South Africa, Australia, Canada, and so on, which basically in in the European historical case, and there are probably others, especially Japan, for example, in its Mm. imperial phase, but especially in the classic European case, it's beyond just imperialism, you know, which is just one government or state having enough power to exert influence or control over other states outside of its immediate vicinity, nor is it just colonialism where you have states actually asserting sovereignty and and recognized control, at least recognized to other imperial powers, control over a specific piece of territory that they will then administer. Right? That, we could say, the British in India were a colonial enterprise, but there were never more than a few tens of thousands of British people there. So there was no interest in most Brits to go and move there and live there and have children there and create a new British society in a place like India. So while it was a colonial enterprise, it was not a settler colonial enterprise. Mm. And so Zionism was one of these movements that from the start was not just about controlling territory. It was about moving large numbers of people there to create a new society in a space that is already inhabited by a population that has long-standing ties to that area. And once you do that, conflict always happens. And with most European settler colonial movements, it was usually the European settlers who won, at least for a very long period of time, because they had the guns, they had the weapons, they had the means to subdue, if not annihilate, largely, the local population. So this is what Zionism was. As I said in the piece, the occupation is really Zionism's manifest destiny. It was inevitable. If you read early Zionist texts, this was always about creating a militant nationalist movement that would conquer both the economy and the territory. And that is why, given the chance in the 90s, for example, during the Oslo era, to actually end the settlement process, to stop being a settler colonial movement, to stop expropriating and stealing land and engaging in this whole matrix of control over the occupied territories that has caused such misery. When it had the chance to do that, and it was supposed to be doing that, it did just the opposite and doubled the number of settlers who were living in the very territories from which everyone assumed it would withdraw. So people, I don't think they can believe that, that this is what Israel did during Oslo. But not only did it do it, it made complete sense that it did it, because that's been the raison d'etre of the movement for over a century. I want to just uh, go in and further look at this, Mark Levine. In your article, you quote the internal logic and goals of Zionism as an openly described settler colonial movement, which you've just stated, were and remain based on the conquest of territory and the removal of as many of the indigenous population as possible in order to ensure permanent Jewish sovereignty over 
over it. Everything else has been little more than window dressing at best and smoke and mirrors. But you also say ethnic cleansing and genocide are the sine qua non for its creation, expansion, and continued existence. So you have just gone into a bit of what these early Zionists themselves, how they saw themselves. Maybe we should just go into a little more detail about that, because you've explained in the article how the original leaders of Zionists understood it, and you contrast it with the historically dominant socialist Zionist movement, which did everything possible to mask the urge Mm -hmm. to conquest with a civilizing mission, as contrasted to the so-called revisionist trend, beginning with the movement's leader, Zev Jabotinsky, and you quote, say, who had at least the decency to be honest, declaring that apart from those who have been virtually blind since childhood, all the other moderate Zionists have long since understood that there's not even the slightest hope of ever obtaining the agreement of the Arabs of the land of Israel to Palestine becoming a country with a Jewish majority. They will always put up a stubborn fight. So let's go there and talk about why then the Zionists needed to justify themselves by dehumanizing the Palestinians. And that was very much like the American settlers did to American natives and indigenous people. Of course. And of course, in Australia to the aboriginals and in Canada and South Africa. I mean, this is the way it works. Well, first of all, There's a bunch of things. I just want to clarify for a second. In the original part of the quote, I wasn't claiming, and I've been doing a whole lot of research on the idea of genocide in Palestine and when that would apply and stuff. Certainly, I think there's a lot of genocidal rhetoric by Zionists. I think to this point, the hard case to say that it's it's approaching genocide in its implications. But when you're talking about how Zionism unfolds, the majority of the early settlers who came from Eastern Europe and Russia came out of a socialist background. They genuinely did not want to, they were not trying to exploit, like the first generation of Zionist movement, who were much more typical colonialists in their mentality. Many of them had worked for the French or German or British colonial enterprises in Africa before they came to Palestine. So the idea of having, let's say, plantations or vineyards Mm -hmm. uh, where the workforce would be largely Arab or Palestinian Arab, and then the owners would be Jewish capitalists, that was something that, needless to say, Jewish socialists who were emigrating to moving to Palestine did not want to do, because that was exactly, they were trying to avoid being capitalists, they were trying to avoid just being owners. They wanted to return to the land, to be pioneers, to create a new Jew out of actually moving, going against all the anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jews who didn't work, who didn't know how to farm, who were just usurers etc. So they had no desire to exploit the local, what would become the Palestinian Arab population. The problem is that it was very hard for them to be in the same territory as Palestinians because it wasn't their territory. And even though there was enough room for small numbers of Jewish communities to emerge at the beginning, they simply couldn't survive on their own. They didn't know how to farm that particular kind of territory and so on. And also they simply couldn't compete. The Why would a Jewish plant owner hire a Jewish worker who can't work as hard as a Palestinian and wants more money. No one would do that. And so what happened is by 1909, the socialist Jewish labor movement had determined that the only way Zionism could succeed and mass Jewish immigration to Palestine could occur is if they created purely Jewish spaces where there were no Arabs quote-unquote Arabs, what we would call Palestinians today, there. And and the only way to do that was through what in Hebrew was called the conquest of territory, the conquest of land, to go along with the conquest of the labor 
market. Now, I just yes, want to ask one sure. question, because the way that you're laying it out, and this is already 1909, so it's way before the Second World War and the influx of the socialist. Oh, sure. Yeah, so, but you said that they found it difficult to work with Palestinians, and so if they wanted to create entirely Jewish spaces with Jewish workers, how did they get over that problem that Jewish workers weren't going to be as good or productive? Well, they never really did. I mean, okay. what they did is they had a lot of support, philanthropic support, external support for the spaces they created. One of them was the kibbutzim. There were two ways they did this. First was the kibbutzim we all know about, which gradually learned how to create an economy. It wasn't quite self-sustaining. It needed a lot of external support. But if it didn't have the competition of Arab labor, they could sustain themselves. They first tried to compete with the local population. They couldn't. That was the conquest of labor. When that failed, they realized they needed to conquer territory, meaning purchase or however necessary gain control of land, move out the local population off the land, and then create an exclusively Jewish space where they could produce their own food, their own goods, trade among themselves, and not have to compete with local Arab produce, local Arab labor, which was a fundamental threat as late as the 1940s. I found a document once where the vice mayor of Tel Aviv threatened to blow up a market on the border of Tel Aviv and Jaffa because the Arab farmers would come and sell their tomatoes and cucumbers far more cheaply than the Jewish farmers could afford to mm. sell it because it was so much cheaper for them to produce it. So this was a constant threat to Zionism. So, of course, that means you have a much more militant nationalism. You begin to see the local population as your enemy, as an existential threat. And especially when it's clear to everyone that ultimately you can't put in a million Jews or hundreds of thousands of Jews without moving out hundreds of thousands of Arabs, you're going to have a nationalist movement that has to, whether it talks about it openly or not, expel a large share of the local population in order to create a viable state. And of course, that's what happened in 1948. So at what point, was it before the creation of Israel or after that the Jewish leaders at the time began to dehumanize the Palestinians? Golda Meir, as you say in your article, infamously claimed there was no such thing as a Palestinian people, and she wasn't just denying their peoplehood, she was denying their humanity. Yeah, and that's a really interesting quote, because of course there were actually Arab activists, especially pan-Arab or Marxist, socialist Arabs, who also said there's no Palestinians. Even mm -hmm. Palestinians who were pan-Arab would say that we're part of a larger Palestinian people. But each one has its own meanings. But when she was saying it, as opposed to a Palestinian who would say, no, I'm part of a larger Arab nation, she was saying it specifically to justify a colonial control and, whenever possible, expulsion of the native population. You can't do that anywhere, as you pointed out, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's Aboriginals, it doesn't matter. You can't commit great acts of violence against the people unless you first dehumanize them. That's why Donald Trump calls immigrants animals. Right. That's why white people have dehumanized blacks and called them animals for centuries. It's very hard to commit violence against someone you recognize as fundamentally the same as you. So the first thing you have to do to justify the violence is to somehow 
convince people that they are not just fundamentally other than you, but they're less than you and a threat to you. And that's exactly what happens with every settler colonial movement. This is nothing that's unique to Zionism, far from it. It happens inside countries, whether it's Egypt and Pakistan. This happens everywhere all the time. But we're just talking about this particular case. And here it succeeded beyond people's wildest dreams because at the crucial moments, the Palestinian community, especially in 48 and 67, had no leadership in place that could defend their interests and could organize them to maintain their position. And without that, it was not that difficult to push hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them out of the country when the war came. And you also say, Mark Levine, that the best way to render the Palestinians to the world as less than human was to force them into violent resistance. And this, of course, is something that is also tried, tested, and true, not just in the particular case, but a quote in your article is, when Ehud Barak declared that if he were a Palestinian, he would join Hamas, he was letting us in on a strategy. He understood that the way to continue to hold the world's grudging sympathy was to push Palestinians past the point of any possibility of peaceful resistance. Now, I think you need to unpack that for our listeners. Sure. Well, what we have to understand about this, and again, you're absolutely right, and this is also what happens in the United States with the way a white government has try to militarize blacks into a level of criminality that then justifies mass violence against them. Same thing with immigrants or Latinos, etc. But in this case, what people have to understand is that Palestinians have been engaged in peaceful resistance every single day for the last 70 years. And 99% of Palestinian acts of resistance against the ongoing occupation and expropriation of their lands and all the other crimes that go along with it are nonviolent and peaceful, right? But as we see with Gaza, even when they respond to the extreme violence of Zionism and Israeli policies against them with nonviolence, the Israeli state responds with even more violence. Any of your listeners who've been to Palestine, as we have, or seen the Israeli military in action, seen the settlers in action, been tear gassed, been shot at, seen the homes being bulldozed, you can see that no matter how you resist, the response is still the same, violence. So when you do that to someone long enough, at a certain point, members of the community are going to crack and they're going to engage in violence. And that violence then gets weaponized itself back against, right? It bounces back, reflects back even more powerfully against the Palestinian society because Israel is able to use that violence to say, see, they're all violent. And the only way, it's very sad, we wish we didn't have to, but the only thing we can do is maintain our occupation as long as we have to until they stop wanting to destroy us or push us into the sea. We see that with David Brooks' column in The Times or Thomas Friedman's idiotic column the other day where the mainstream media still keeps this rhetoric going of Palestinians are throwing their children against Israeli snipers as if it's their fault that the Israelis are shooting them. How could you make me shoot you like this? Or like you you could say, you could also say the headline in the New York Times that made me just put it down the day after, you know, the shootings was an aggrieved Israeli citizen who considered himself a peacenik saying, I hope the bullets were justified. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's exactly the classic case of the wife-beating husband, mm. who, as he's beating his wife, saying, how could you make me do this to you? Mm. I mean, <laughs> this is really, and why I wrote in the column, the title, that the greatest threat to Jews is Zionism, or I maybe could have said Israel for that matter, mm. um, is because there is a level of psychopathy in Israeli society today. It has been there for decades, but I think it is fair to say that you have a culture, a country, that is really psychopathic at this point, that is just feeding in a frenzy off the violence against Palestinians. I was just there a few weeks ago. I see it every time I'm there, and I'm there regularly. That it is, at one point, there was this idea that it's a shame that we have to commit this violence. We don't want to. There was people would feel guilty. Then they go join peace now, and they would want to try to meet with Palestinians. That's all over. Even that level of sort of liberal Zionist guilt, like liberal American guilt, is just gone. Now it's just these people are animals. We can do whatever we want to them, and there's no consequence. Mm -hmm. And that is truly frightening. And that is not just some Israelis. That's the majority of Israelis, because look at the support the government has for its policies. So to me, as a Jewish person, this makes this ideology at this point an extreme threat to the survival of the larger Jewish culture. I'm speaking with Mark Levine, and this is Jacobin Radio. And Mark, I think it's the perfect time to turn to the relationship between the United States and Israel. And you mentioned that the dog wags the tail and not vice versa. It's something I've always argued as well. So maybe you could just say or explain to our listeners how you interpret the relationship between the United States and Israel in connection with the history that you've just brought up and also specifically to this this illusion that many on the left have seen U.S. pro-Israel policy as driven by the Israelis so that the tail is, in a sense, wagging the dog. Right. I think this is fundamental because I think the left makes an incredible mistake when it assumes, and it's almost an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, just uncritical one. That I just so agree emerging. with you on this. Yes. This idea, oh, it's the Israel that somehow manages to convince America mm -hmm. to support it. This is ludicrous. First of all, America killed over three million South Asians in Vietnam. We have no problem bombing, invading, massacring, and committing genocide against anyone the U.S. government feels it needs to advance its interest or make more money for the elites who control this country. So the idea that America would somehow behave differently if there wasn't some kind of magical control that the Israel lobby or the Jewish lobby has over it is ridiculous. Israel is allowed to do what it does because it serves the fundamental interests of the elites who control this country. There was a wonderful book I always urge people to read by two Israeli economists, Jonathan Nitzan and Shimshon Bichler, came out about 13 years ago, but still, I think, the most important book on Israel-Palestine in a long time called The Global Political Economy of Israel. 
and they show precisely how the militarization of the Israeli economy and of the occupation is tied intimately to the militarization of American foreign policy, to the growing power of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, especially the oil and arms companies, who together more or less control the U.S. political economy. Maybe they're not the biggest sectors economically compared to Google or Apple, but in our political economy, they reign supreme. And Israel just serves so many functions in that political economy. It's where we try out our weapons. It's where we generate chaos. It's how we support wars. It's how we have a reliable proxy that can do whatever it is that needs to be done. And that's why today, when you have other countries like Saudi Arabia, which everyone knew always had decent relations or even close relations behind the scene, now openly supports Israel, because this kind of hyper-militarized political economy that is being used to sustain these horrible, murderous elites in power is now completely out in the open, right? There's no need even to hide it. So I think it behooves the left, who is trying to creatively come up with a way to resist this, to understand that Israel is part of a larger system. It's not some unique outlier that has some magical ability to get other people or other countries to do what they wouldn't otherwise done. And if fact, Israel didn't exist, it would have to be created. Right. And in fact, you know, there is a U.S. foreign policy establishment. You write in your article that Israel is more like a salamander's tail than a dog's. It can be sloughed off the moment it stops being useful, has fulfilled its purpose, or gets the U.S. caught in a particularly unpleasant or dangerous situation. And I think You've just started to talk about that, but we may be moving just toward that kind of very dangerous situation with Iran. I don't know if, if that's within the scope of what you're it's thinking It's very about. possible. I mean, again, though, what's really, I think, frightening now, and I do think if Israel's behavior or if the policies that Israel is at the spearhead of, which the U.S. government is clearly behind, I mean, now it's not even pretending, right. like under Obama, if they led to real disaster, certainly the U.S. government would sacrifice Israel in order to extricate itself. But now you have the Saudis and the UAE and these other countries that are throwing hundreds of billions of dollars. The amounts of money are just staggering, really incomprehensible for normal people like us to understand into this kind of system and this kind of war. And they are itching for a war against Iran. First of all, because the first day of the war, their net worth would triple, right? Oh, because wow. oil prices would go completely through the roof. They'd be well over $100 again. And everyone would be just happy, right. Right? Uh, you know, because their income would just grow enormously. So they don't care about their own people. They don't care about anyone else's people. They care about staying in power and extending their power. And the way to do that in this heavily militarized global system that is increasingly cementing itself is through violence and chaos and war. This is exactly the situation in the United States, too, with those who think, how can they pursue policies that are so detrimental even to the U.S. economy? And you've just answered it, of course, because it's their own bottom line that they care about. But I wanted to move now because you had just started to say about how the Israeli peaceniks have almost have yeah. either become silent or made their peace with the policies that the government is putting forward. It's a very complex <coughs> question, but I wanted to move to what you think 
would be an analogous situation with progressive Jews in the United States. First, is it? You say in your article, in retrospect, it is still shocking how liberal and progressive Jews have for so long enabled such intense racism, oppression, and violence in their name with so little resistance. They've even deluded themselves with the idea that the idea of a democratic and Jewish state was still possible if only Palestinians could make the hard compromises necessary to allow the occupation to end. And you also said Jews have held fast to the Jewish state as if its purity and innocence remained untouched, all that blood simply running off, disappearing and forgotten into the earth. Of course, this belief was never anything but a willfully ignorant fantasy. And of course, first of all, the writing is so powerful, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about what you're saying and whether or not anything is different today. Has anything changed? Nothing remains static, but I think the key thing is that the peace camp in Israel, the period when the so-called peace camp in Israel was at its zenith, was a period when in the late 80s through the early 90s, maybe 88 after the Intifada broke out till maybe 94, 95 till Rabin's assassination, when you still weren't allowed to say what the actual outcome of the peace process would be. Even though everyone assumed it was supposed to be a Palestinian state, independent, territorially contiguous Palestinian state with some kind of Jerusalem as its capital and some deal where most refugees would largely be left out of Israel but go there to the new state. This was the deal everyone assumed would happen, but you couldn't talk about it. And the reason you couldn't talk about it is once you started to actually say a Palestinian state, then you'd have to think, oh, wait a minute, what does that actually mean? What would we have to do? Oh, we'd have to get rid of all these settlers. We'd have to stop this huge machine that has been growing at that point almost 30 years in order to make this happen. But the whole settlement system was designed to be impossible to dismantle and was already impossible to dismantle by the mid-80s, within a generation of the occupation starting. So as soon as it started to become clear that Israel really couldn't ever give up the occupation, that exactly what people like Begin and Sharon and Shamir, the right-wing leaders of the state, wanted was to make it impossible for that solution to ever happen, and they succeeded. Once it became clear that the price of actually a fair and just peace and having a real two-state solution was essentially a civil war within Israel, then no one was going to do that. Therefore, what did you have to do? You had to return to dehumanization. Right? And so we see a return, and that's why most of the left either walked away from it, left Israel completely, which many people have done and continue to do, or basically started to blame the Palestinians, which is how you get this frenzy of people saying, how could they throw themselves in front of our bullets? And actually meaning it, like seriously asking a completely ludicrous question, because they can't bring themselves to think through how they got to this point. And do you see it as any different in the United States? Because there's a whole generation of young people who do not see the politics of Israel the same way that, say, their parents did, even their I think it's. A, I think you're right. Okay. I think you're absolutely right, because they don't have so much riding on the myth, because they're not in Israel, because they're not going to be called upon to do their army service. And, you know, unlike most armies, if you are in the Israeli military, you are more or less directly or one level removed from direct oppression of the other 
people. So when you serve in the army, you are oppressing and probably have some level of blood on your hands of Palestinians. So you need to rationalize, justify, psychologically adapt to that reality. So, of course, the way you do it is to blame the person you're committing the violence on. Otherwise, how could you live with yourself? So you could see how Israelis find it so hard to accept this and to move away from the ideas, these kind of racist ideas. And this is why the country is becoming more fascist and more racist every year for over at least the last two decades. But American Jews don't have that, right? You have a whole generation growing up who see this going on from afar, say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, this is not what I understood Judaism to be. This is not what I grew up with in the synagogue or what my parents taught me or what I learned. Just culturally, Jews were supposed to be progressive. We marched with King. We fought apartheid. This is what Jews are. If I have to choose between that idea of being Jewish and being, you know, a settler living in the West Bank oppressing an indigenous population, which would I rather be? Of course, you'd rather choose that vision of Judaism. And that's why I think you increasingly have a, this new generation, which is not just critical of Israel, it's essentially anti-Zionist. And the fastest growing group in the Jewish world, in America at least, is Jewish Voice for Peace, which is more or less explicitly anti-Zionist, supports the BDS movement, because those Jews don't have the investment in perpetuating this terrible myth and all the violence that goes along with it, and in fact see it as the toxic nightmare that it in fact is. Mark, this has just been so good. I think we're going to have to have you back for a second part to actually discuss your solution. We don't have enough time to go into all of it, but I know that earlier you've written, you know, when many have abandoned the two-state solution, you've talked about parallel states. What do you think? Will you come back and talk about Absolutely. That? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, and I think in the midst of this kind of struggle, if you spend, people who spend time in the West Bank, especially it's harder in Gaza, but who spend time with Palestinians in the West Bank, with international activists, they see the seeds, however buried they are, and scorched of a kind of new idea of identity and community between the peoples that is starting to emerge, just like it happened in South Africa through the ANC and the participation of white South Africans in the anti-apartheid struggle. You're seeing the same process happening today in Israel-Palestine, and that to me is the future. Thank you so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio, Mark Levine. He teaches history My pleasure. at the University of California, Irvine, and in Sweden as well, at the Lund Center for Middle Eastern Studies. He's a world musician, we shouldn't forget that, and tweets at Culture Jamming and is a columnist for Al Jazeera. We're looking forward to your next book, which is a collaboratively written history of the occupation with several dozen leading Palestinian, Israeli, and international scholars. And you can still get Mark's two. 2016 book, Islam and Popular Culture. Mark Levine, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.